You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad that you're here this morning. Those of you watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. Those of you who are watching us from South Africa and Jeffreys Bay, let's give a shout out to them. Say, hey, welcome. On the count of three, one, two, three. It's great. To, I know you're, you're watching us later in the week and everything, and there's this group of folks that meet every Tuesday morning and watch us online from South Africa. And so it's so great to um, be able to partner with you and be a part of that. If you're our first-time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. We are glad to have you here today. Now, the thing that I know about everybody in this room is we all love a good story, don't we? Matter of fact, we grew up our entire lives listening to stories and enjoying stories. And we particularly love a good story that has a happy ending. One of those happily ever after endings or one of those things that make us feel good. And you can think of a number of stories in your mind right now that have those happy endings. Let me just throw one up that you're familiar with is Cinderella. And in the storyline of Cinderella, she is a beautiful young girl that finds herself in a house where she has an evil stepmother and evil stepsisters that keep her a slave. She can't enjoy anything. The prince is having a ball in town. She's not invited. But her fairy godmother shows up, grants a wish. Long story short, she goes to the ball at midnight. Everything turns back to where it was. She runs away, leaves a slipper, a glass slipper. And the prince grabs the grass slipper glass slipper. He goes all through the region and he finds the one girl, the only girl in the whole region whose foot happens to fit in that glass slipper. And then they get married and they live happily ever after. And everybody is so happy with that story. We like those good ending stories. But then sometimes there are some stories out there that not only make us glad, but they're stories that can make us sad. And sometimes we're okay with sad stories, especially for some of those nursery rhymes we grew up with. How about this one? Humpty Dumpty. And you all know the line, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't what? Put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It ends on a sad note. But we're okay with that because as far as we know, nobody pushed Humpty Dumpty off the wall. He fell off the wall. He was exasperated. He was, you know, exactly, you know, enough of the egg stuff. But he was unable to be put back together. And as a result, we're okay that it's sad. Sometimes stories make us glad. Sometimes they make us sad. And then there's another story that most of us grew up with, and particularly young boys. We loved the storyline of this. Because it seemed to bring about some justice in a world of injustice, even though there are some gray lines in this, and that is Robin Hood. You remember the story of Robin Hood? This is Kevin Costner playing the role of Robin Hood. And you remember what the storyline was about. The wealthy, rich, corrupt people of the day were taxing the poor and the oppressed, taking their money, spending it on themselves in luxurious mansions and homes. They were living the high life while the people were suffering at their cruel rulership. Sounds kind of common today. But what we see is... All of a sudden, Robin Hood comes up. 
And he starts robbing the rich and he gives the money from the rich back to the poor who are oppressed. And we feel good about that. Because you know what? Those corrupt people got their right reward. The oppressed people got what they really deserved. And Robin Hood got the girl. So everything worked out fine. We're okay with that. But let me tell you what we would not tolerate. If Robin Hood were a class A con artist. And he duped everybody in the culture to believe that he was really on their side. And he was stealing the money from the rich, giving a little bit to the poor, keeping most of it for himself, putting it in a secret bank account, buying a ranch out in Yellowstone. <laughs> I was hoping that would work. <laughs> and then keeping the money for himself, and then eventually being elected as the governor. And then what you find is, no, he can't be trusted. He is as crooked as everybody else. Here's the thing we know. Happy endings make us glad. Suffering makes us sad. Injustice makes us mad. Because there's something wrong with that. And we live in a culture today that's filled with injustice and oppression, don't we? We, feel in, we live in a culture today that we look around and we see the injustice of humanity all around us. And it, it infuriates us. We can be angry with it. Consider the injustice of politicians who make great promises. And then what they end up doing is using their position to fuel their own kingdoms for their own good. We all hate to see that. Or how about the injustice of an organization that maybe hijacked a phrase and began to use it for their own kingdoms? One that comes to mind is the Black Lives Matter organization who hijacked a viable phrase, but then takes it and uses it for their own purposes. And we see the corruptness in that own organization and the empires that were built as a result of that. How about the countless pastors in America and around the world who are telling people that if you give me money, then God will honor you and make you wealthy. And they give them a lie, hoping for something that will never be theirs at the expense of someone else. We don't like that. And when we witness injustice in our culture and in our world, there's something within us that raises up and says, that's not right. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And for those of you who are newcomers, we've been looking at this book that Solomon, the son of King David, Solomon is the wisest man, the wealthiest man, the most powerful man in the world. He writes this book called Ecclesiastes, and the whole book is looking at how life is meaningless under the sun. Now, every single chapter talks about this, and what he's painting a picture of is this. When you live life in a horizontal plane, when you live life based upon your five senses, when you live life without God's role in your life, all of life will be meaningless and empty. And it has to do with every aspect of our life. And at the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, Solomon is looking around. He's observing injustice and oppression. And it makes him angry. And in that, he tells us again that all of this is meaningless if you're living life under the sun. If you're living life from a strictly horizontal, five senses, 
my pleasure approach to life. But in this chapters, these two chapters, chapters 3, verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, verse 16, we got a lot to cover this morning. And here's what he's going to lay out for us. I'm going to go ahead and give you the point straight up front. He's going to talk about the cause of injustice and oppression. Then he's going to give us the case of injustice and oppression. Then he's going to give us confronting injustice and oppression. And then we're going to conclude with with the cure for injustice and oppression. So that's where we're going this morning. And then we've got a lot to cover. So take your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to begin where Solomon leads us. Before we do, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. I pray that you would speak through me today. And that, Father, your word, as relevant as it is for today, would pierce our hearts and teach us truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, we're going to read the first thing that he's going to talk about is the cause of injustice. He's going to lay out this, and he's going to help us to understand why there is injustice and oppression in the world. And he begins by writing it like this. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, he's talking about a specific place. We're going to talk about that later. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Again, he's saying that God is the ultimate judge. He's going to bring this to according to his righteousness. We'll talk about that in a few moments. Then he goes on. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. What is Solomon saying in this passage? He's given us the cause of all injustice and all oppression and all problems of humanity. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that in the end, he said that when you live life under the sun, you are no different than the wild animals. Now, what he's not saying is that there is no distinction between humanity and the animal kingdom. We know that God says that he created man on the sixth day. Man is to have rule over the earth. He is not holding a Darwinian evolutionist view that says a man is a boy, is a dog, is a frog, is an amoeba. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this. He's saying that when you and I live life under the sun, when we live from a purely horizontal position and God is nowhere in the midst of our life, we are animalistic to the core. We live our life in such a way that it is survival of the fittest. We live our life in such a way that it is a dog-eat-dog world. We live our lives in such a way that we're really not concerned about justice and righteousness because this is about me. I've got to scrap. I've got to work. I've got to claw. I've got to do everything I can to get ahead in life. And when we act like that, we're no different than the animals. Have any of you ever been on a safari? 
Raise your hand. If you've been on a safari, some of you, have you ever been on a Massamara? I've been on a Massamara. It's an incredible thing. When you go to the Massamara, all of these animals are doing what they do best. They fight each other and they run. Nobody's having discussions on the Massamara about injustice or uh, oppression. There is this flight or fight syndrome on the Massamara. When animals get cornered, they're either going to fight or they're going to flight. And a lot of people are like that. I kind of like the hybrid thing. I like to fight, then flight. I like to slap and then run, you know? I like that hybrid thing. I'll slap you and I'll run from you. And good luck catching me. But on the Massamara, this is what they do. They attack one another. And they are working for the survival of the fittest. And here's what Solomon's point is. He's saying when you live without God, when you live without any kind of moral compass in your life, you really don't care that much about injustice. Let me give you an illustration. You might say, oh, that is terrible what those people have done. But you might fudge maybe on your income tax. And it's okay with you to get away with that, but it's not okay for them to get away with what they do. And so at the end, he's saying we become animalistic. And he says, and ultimately, we die as they die. We die just like the other animals die, and we're all put in the ground. You know, it doesn't matter. You might have Dobie the dog. You might have Henry the hamster. You might have Fanny the fish. You might have some other animal that your kids talked you into buying that you now regret. But they all die. Now, he's not trying to come up with some theology that all dogs go to heaven, but all cats go to, well, you know. And uh, he's not, now I'm going to be in trouble with that. I'm going to get some emails about that. Okay. But I don't know what happens to them. I can't tell you. But his point is this. Whenever you and I live our lives in such a way without God as the center, we ultimately act animalistic. And our moral compass is affected and infected by our problem. What is our problem? He doesn't really spell it out, but the rest of scripture does. Why is there injustice? Why is there oppression? Why is there murder? Why is there rape? Why is there all adultery? Why are all these different things? The apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter five, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's the picture. The picture is the debacle that happened in the garden between Adam and Eve and Almighty God when they took that fruit of the tree that was forbidden. They took and they ate it. At that moment, sin entered into the human race. And when sin entered in, all the DNA of the universe became fractured and it was so fractured that every single human being from that point on was impacted by sin and a fallen nature. Every single one. And here's what we need to understand. People are not sinners because they sin. You're not a sinner because you sin. If that's true, if you can avoid sinning, you would be perfect. That's not what he's saying. You are not a sinner because you sin. It's the other way. You sin because you are a sinner. You sin because you have a sinful nature. And that sinful nature guides you into do 
what you do and the sins of your life, the actions that you take or that are offensive to God and contrary to a word are just symptoms of something that's broken inside of us. If you don't believe this is true, listen, every cable talk show without exception, every magazine, every book, every podcast, everything you can imagine is man's attempt to try to fix, solve, or to figure out what has gone wrong with humanity. That's what we do. It doesn't matter if you listen to Tucker Carlson on Fox News, if you listen to Joe Rogan on a podcast, if you listen to The View, if you watch CNN, there's certainly evidence on CNN that something has gone wrong with humanity. But here's the problem with all of this is we're broken. And every single bookstore that sells self-help books are telling us something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. And what is it that's wrong? The reality is every one of us has been affected and infected by sin. Why is there murder? Sin. Why is there injustice? Sin. Why is there oppression? Sin. Why is there jealousy and strife and division? Sin. We go back to every bit of it. Now, there might be some of you here today who are pushing back on that and say, no, 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 no. I know that humanity can be good and it's all determined by the environment with which you grew up. Really? Really? How many of you have kids? How many of you have had kids or have kids? Raise your hand. You know that it doesn't take long for a child to display their sinful nature. When do they start doing it? Day one. They cry because they want their bottle. They cry because they want to be held. And they display it all through their life. How many of you have had kids who like to bite? Don't be, don't, don't, don't be ashamed, who like to bite. Okay, nursery workers, pin these people out. Let's <laughs> make sure. No, you have kids who like to bite. Why do they like to bite? Did they learn to bite because you and your spouse get in an argument and the way you solve your argument is you start biting each other? You launch into each other's necks and you draw blood? No. How many of you have children who like to slap, who like to hit? My little girl was like that. Leslie was like that. Man, she'd slap Ryan and she'd run. She had that hybrid thing like I like. But she'd slap him and run. Why? Why did she do that? Did she do that because Chris and I would get in an argument? Come here, come here, come here. Come here. No, I would never do that to my wife because she would slap the fool out of me. <laughs> it's intrinsic within every single human heart. The problem with the world is sin. And what is the middle letter in sin? I. So what Solomon is telling us is that we're broken. And because we're broken, we can see all of the problems of injustice and oppression in the world. Politics will not solve it. Policies may be helpful, but they will not solve it. Working harder, reading more books, none of those things are the answer. So he tells us, here's the cause of all of this. Then the second thing he does is he goes to the case for injustice. And he gives us several illustrations. Now I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because of time. But here's the case for injustice. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 16. He says this. First, we see it in the courts. 
We see injustice in the courts. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, which is a court, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, which is a court, there was wickedness. First thing he says is I look around and I see the court system. Now, Israel had a fabulous judiciary system, but they were corrupt. And here's what he discovered. The people who had the greatest resources, the most money, and the best lawyers always won. Does that sound familiar? That sound familiar? It's always the case. And it seems like in a place where justice should be served, wickedness prevails. I was reading this past week of a guy who was robbing a home. He fell through the roof. He was injured. He sued the homeowner whom he was robbing, and he won. It just doesn't make sense. If y'all watching the Murdoch, the Murdoch trials, you got nothing to do if you are. So... <laughs> But anyway, you're watching every bit of that unfold. And what you're beginning to see is injustice all around us. He's saying it's in the courts. Any of you ever serve on jury duty? Jury, I get called everywhere I go. Every city I ever live in, I get called to jury duty. Doesn't matter. My last name, Ortigo, I think they think it's Ortega. And maybe they might have some kind of maybe ethnic support on that, 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 that jury. But I get called every time. I got called for the grand jury. I was thinking, no, there's no way I'm going to make it. I got on the grand jury for a year. Lucky me. Blessed me. The judge told me it would be the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. I'm still waiting for that moment. And, uh, and then two years later, I got called on another jury which was a tax fraud, I'm sorry, an insurance fraud situation. And so I'm I'm trying to get out of this jury. I'm thinking, I don't want to be here. I've got too much to do. And so the the, the lawyers come in and ask you all the questions. They want to pick the best jurors. And the lawyer comes to me, and and I don't know which one's a defense and which one's a prosecutor. They're asking questions, and one of them says, "Uh, Mr. Ortigo, what do you do? And so I thought I would give my most reverend answer, and that would get me off. I said, I'm the pastor of Scotts Hill Baptist Church. I thinking, nobody want a pastor. Then he asked you the second question. Do you believe that there's too much fraud today in our culture? And at that time, there was a guy on the news who was suing an actor because he looked like the actor, and he wanted to get paid because of his likeness. Everybody knew about that. So I thought, oh, I got the answer. He said, you think there's too much? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. For example... I could sue Tom Cruise because he looks like me. (laughs) They broke out in laughter just like as you do, and I don't know why. But I thought, I'm off this case, buddy. I got picked, plus I was the foreman of that jury. (laughs) Justice was served. But we see injustice in the courts. But here's another place. How about in politics? Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Horizontal. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. He's talking about the politicians now. Now, although this was a monarchy and a king, they had rulers underneath that. And Solomon is watching the oppression that's coming from the political leaders. Boy, if there's ever been a time we've ever felt that, that is certainly in these days. We see rulers, we see politicians who are destroying people's lives because they don't vote the way they vote. We see politicians who are making rules for us and everyone else, but they don't apply to themselves. We see politicians who are constantly gaslighting and creating racial division, and we see that building up in our culture like never before. 
and it infuriates us. And we see it all around us. He's saying it's in the politics. I was looking this past week to define the word politics. It comes from two words, poly, which means many, and ticks, which means blood-sucking creatures. Um, <laughs> now, I'm not saying all politicians are like that. I'm not. There are some really good, godly men and women who have entered the arena to bring in justice from a moral code and an approach that way. But we see it is all around us. So sad was it that in, that in verses two and three, he says this, and though I saw the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. The people who have died, they don't have to put up with all this corruption, but better than both is the one who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Listen, it's so bad. Have you ever said, oh, oh, I just dread my grandkids coming to this world? Oh, I'd hate for my kids to be able to see this kind of stuff. So corrupt is it that people are saying it would be better if my children were never born. Now that's a bad state to be. But not only does he say that it is in the courts and he sees it also in politics, he says there's injustice in the workplace. Now this is a bit surprising in the workplace. And in the workplace, he breaks it down into three kind of groups that demonstrate injustice. Here's what he says. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Some of the injustice comes because of jealousy. People who are jealous of one another in the workforce. He's not talking about corporations coming against one another. He's not talking about free enterprise uh, or against free enterprise. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this. Sometimes there's injustice in the workforce because we are so envious and jealous of one another that we hope the other people don't succeed so we do. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever secretly hoped for somebody that works with you or above you to fail so you would look good? Have you ever secretly hoped for a competitor to lose ground so that you can win that deal? Have you ever secretly hoped worse for somebody else so that you would get ahead? I mean, I have to ask myself the questions. Have I ever hoped that there would be a pastor in town that would have a moral failure so I would look better and maybe get some of his people? Has a student pastor ever hoped that another ministry would crumble so that this ministry would grow or a college student? You see, there's injustice in that. And I gotta confess to you, this past week I had to deal with that in my own heart. In my own heart, there are some pastors that I would hope would fail for my own good. Let me give you the illustration. I'm just going to be straight up and confess this to you. This past week, Donnie and I got to play golf with Jeff and Garrett. And Donnie and I were against them. And the score was even. And Jeff Poteet, who was crushing the ball all day long, carried Garrett. And while they came to a hole, we were even, and Jeff is about to putt a birdie putt, and they would put them ahead of us. And you know what I did? I'm standing there leaning on my golf club, and I said, come on, Jeff, you can do this. Let me tell you what my face 
was different than my heart. What I really meant was, come on, Jeff, I hope your putter breaks and you hit the ball completely off the green and it goes into the sand and it takes you five more strokes to even get it to the hole. That's really what I was hoping. He birdied the hole and they won. And I've learned to accept that. Now, I know that's silly, but don't we all do it? And there can be an injustice whenever we want other people to fail so that we can look good. And here's another thing he says. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Laziness. There's injustice in laziness. We all know that. The people who don't work for a living, who don't contribute, yet get money from everybody else in culture and from the government. I read this last week of a couple that made $90,000 last year and never worked a second at the expense of taxpayers and government. You and I would say, that's not right. But let me quit preaching and let me just kind of get under your skin. How about the people who don't do their job on the job? How about Christians who are constantly trying to get out of the work that they're called to work in? The ones who maybe take a few things from the office here and there. The ones who get a little bit of extra time for not really doing the job. That's injustice. And it's the same. Or how about this last one? And again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. This is the workaholic. This is the one that has given himself so much or herself so much on the job that they've neglected their family to the degree that their spouses have left and their children will not even speak to them anymore. Because life has been just about my career and my advancement. And at the end, there's nothing left. That's injustice. So we can see that injustice can be all kind of different ways. He gives us this advice in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving. In other words, there's got to be a balance when we do this. So here's what he says. Here's the cause. Here's some of the cases of injustice. It's definitely in the courts. It's definitely in politics. It's even in our own workforce. And before we get too high and mighty and start pointing at all the other people in culture, the Spirit of God always points back and says, what about this in your life? So the third thing is how do we confront justice? I love the way he just flows through this. Now he gives us confronting justice. I don't have a lot of time. I've got to fly through this, okay? There are three things he says about confronting justice. And by the way, let me tell you this. His method of confronting injustice, I'm sorry, injustice, his me method of confronting injustice is not a riot. It's not burning down buildings. It's not practicing unjust and unrighteous acts to prove that there's been injustice here. It's not any of those things. It's totally different. And this first one's a huge piece of what we need to understand as we see injustice and oppression around us. What do we do? It's one thing to just talk about it. It's another thing to act in a right way. 
And here's what Solomon says. First of all, he says this. We are to be resting in a heavenly conviction. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. God will judge it. Injustice is temporary. It is not eternal. And while we may have to deal with it in this life, we are to leave room for the wrath of God in the areas of injustice. Now, it doesn't mean we don't speak about against them, but here's the thing. Ultimately, we leave room for the wrath of God because God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Now, let me say something real clear here. There are a lot of people around the world who hold religious view that at the end of judgment, God is going to put our good deeds and our bad deeds on a scale. And if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, then we get a reward. But if our bad deeds outweigh our good deeds, then we get punishment. And 40% of Americans in America believe that. That when they get before God, all their good deeds are going to be weighed against their bad deeds. And they all hope that the scale will be in their favor. But I'm going to tell you right now, to believe that God is that kind of a judge is to declare God to be wicked and evil in his justice. No judge who is a righteous judge would ever Look at a case in that way. Now, a progressive judge may, but a righteous judge would never look at that. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say a person has been arrested for rape and murder, and that person stands before the judge, and the judge says, let me see, huh? you're being accused of rape and murder, but you know what? I, I see that you're a family man, and, and, and I see that you have nice kids, and you've been having this job for 30 years. You've demonstrated yourself a, a contributor to culture. You, you have um, um, some civil places that you're working that's really good, and, and you're a coach of a little league. You're, you're church-going folks. So when I look at all that against this infraction, yeah, here's a one infraction of rape and murder, but all of these others are so much good. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to let you off of this infraction. We would be screaming at the injustice of that. And God would not do the same because sin and crime must be punished. And a just God will never do that because his standard is not based upon your goodness or somebody else's badness. His standard is based upon his perfection. And we can never meet it. But for those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been covered in the blood of Christ. You have been counted as righteous. So you are redeemed and forgiven. But those who have never trusted Christ, you are on your own before a holy God of the universe. And he will never weigh your good by your bad because there's nothing in your life that comes close to his perfection. And it's only in Jesus Christ that you can withstand that judgment. And for those of us who are in Christ and those of us who may be treated with injustice and unkindness, 
We can walk through this life knowing this, that in Christ, I am secure for all eternity. And for those people who are wicked and are oppressing and are demonstrating injustice, my prayer is that they would come to know my Savior so that they would not fall into the hands of a wrathful God. That's the picture. And what we do as believers, we can rest in the confidence that God will always do what's just based upon his own character. So he says, you want to confront? First of all, trust me. I've got this. I see the injustice in your life. I see the oppression. I've got this. And here's the second thing that we are to live in a healthy community. While we're going through difficult times and maybe there is injustice and maybe there is oppression, one of the answers is not only trusting in the confidence of God, but it is that we are living in a healthy community together. Now, I love what he says in verses 9 through 12. And a lot of times what we end up doing is we read these in weddings and we always refer to these as referring to a husband and a wife joining together. The context of this passage is in injustice and oppression. And here's what he says. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know what he's saying in these passages are three things. He's saying community is vitally important when you and I are in a place of difficulties. He says, first of all, in a community, we can encourage, we can have mutual encouragement for when we're weak. When you fall, I'm there to pick you up. When I fall, you're there to pick me up. There can be mutual, not only encouragement, support when we're vulnerable. There are times when we are vulnerable. There are times when we can give in and another person can say, I'm gonna help you through this. And then there are times where we need mutual protection because we're attacked. And it's within a community that as we live life together in this thing called church family and church life, the onslaughts of the world can come, but we can hold each other up. And not only that, we could speak out in culture against it together. We can model the character of Christ in a broken culture together for God's glory and for man's good. And here's the third thing, real quickly. When we're confronting it, overcoming hurtful circumstances. We are to overcome hurtful circumstances. There's a tendency in our culture, when we're hurt, we just become the victim. And if you can victimize me, then what happens? I become enslaved to your oppression over me, and I will never rise above it. And I will always find myself in this place of being the one beaten up rather than the one who's victorious in Christ Jesus. And he gives this illustration and he closes with this. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. 
I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. And he finishes this way. There was no end of all the people of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity striving after win. What is he saying? He's painting a picture of Joseph in the Old Testament who was mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, bought by Potiphar. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of trying to molest her, thrown into prison, was there two full years before he was, he was forgotten. And then what happens? He interprets the king's dreams and he moves into the palace of Pharaoh and he becomes the second in command and is leading countless people. Here's his point. He was disadvantaged from the beginning, but he refused to let this disadvantage keep him from being who God wanted him to be. And sometimes when we're oppressed, sometimes when there's injustice, sometimes when there's unfairness that is done to us, we let those things define us rather than trusting in the grace of God to bring us far beyond the brokenness of this world, of our own lives, and what people want to inflict on us. I was thinking that this week, and there was a man by the name of Tom Sullivan. I don't know if you ever heard of Tom Sullivan, but Tom Sullivan has been a keynote speaker, sought-after speaker in the United States for a number of years. When he speaks, he speaks to tens of thousands of people. He's a motivational speaker. When he leaves from that platform, people are just amazed and they're so inspired. This guy has appeared on Good Morning America multiple times. He has appeared in a number of television shows and movies. He is a a world-class athlete, two-time national champion wrestler. He was in the 1985 Olympics as a wrestler. This guy has a degree in Harvard when a degree from Harvard used to be worth something. He, this, this is a guy who, who actually has um, jumped from an airplane 37 times. Uh, he runs six miles every single day. He swims. Oh, I forgot to tell you one thing. Tom is completely blind. Completely blind. And when he speaks, this is what he says. You have a disadvantage? Good. Take that disadvantage to your advantage. He says, people are not drawn to similarities. They're drawn to differences. And the grace of God in your life is what makes you different. I like that. And in the midst of this world of victimization, we hear constantly, I'm disadvantaged. We hear constantly about underprivileged. We hear constantly about the struggles and, oh, those people did this to me and that to me. And what is God saying? Now, in the midst of all of this, don't let those things define you. My grace will refine you for my glory. So here's the last thing. What's the cure? Solomon gives us no cure in this passage. But the other side of Romans chapter 5 does. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12, we see being plunged into sin. In verse 17, Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
What's the need for humanity? It's Jesus. What's the need for the injustice in the world? It's Christ. Is there anyone in our history of humanity that suffered a greater injustice than Jesus? No one. Perfect son of God without sin. Coming on our behalf. Ridiculed. Mocked. Spit upon. Beaten beyond recognition. Hung on a cross. For you and me. The, the answer for humanity is Jesus Christ. Some of you here this morning need to understand that, that he is the answer for your life. Oh, you might be looking around the world and say, how do we get out of all of this injustice and this oppression? We never will. We live in a broken world with broken people who are driven by a sinful nature. We're always going to be in the presence of sin until we are with Jesus in glory. So in the midst of all of that, he's the answer. He's the answer for politics. He's the answer for work. He's the answer for court systems. He's the answer for school. He's the answer for your life. It's Jesus. And when you live under the sun, you will live as an animalistic instinct of surviving. But when you live beyond the sun, then you recognize that this broken world is temporary. And that God is righteous and just. And it is our responsibility to usher in justice and righteousness through the person of Jesus. He's the answer for you and for me. And no matter what you're going through in life, he's the one that can provide the only clear direction for our lives. Believers, as we're walking in this world as broken, we can be grieved over it, but we can share the gospel because it's the answer. He's the answer. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling hopeless about this state of our world and our culture, it is hopeless. It's meaningless under the sun. But in Jesus Christ, there is our only hope. He is the redeemer of all mankind. And today, he is here to redeem us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We ask, Father, today, that as we walk through a lot of information, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and encourage our hearts where we need encouragement. Father, that you would convict our hearts where we need to be convicted. And Father, for those who are believers in this room, may we know that we can trust you with all things. And Father, those who may be here today and are not believers, I ask, Father, that you would speak to their heart, encourage them today with truth about Jesus. And Father, they would consider him and consider surrendering their lives to him as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.